You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We've seen a lot of huge protests and rallies over the past couple of years, and many of them are hinging on a question of equal rights for marginalized communities. And when events have focused on far right-wing speakers and the bigoted demands of white nationalists, we've seen counterpunches, sometimes literally, from some of the far-left groups. Because of this, the word Antifa has come into our lexicon in recent weeks. Antifa, meaning anti-fascist, is a loosely connected group of people who intend to be extremely disruptive to far-right and hate groups. Sometimes they employ violence when they do that. Most left-leaning groups of protesters or counter-protesters pride themselves on peaceful protest, but not all. Where does the far left fit into an American picture of protest and civil liberties? And I want to talk about this not only in terms of the modern iterations we are seeing right now, but of course about history. Think of the history of progressive movements in this country. They have often had to rely to some extent on violence to either make their point or to win the day. Is that related to what we're seeing with Antifa? Is that uh, the history, is that the foundation for the conversation that we're having now? Or are we seeing something very different than what we have experienced in the past? If you want to join the conversation here, uh, give us a call, 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put your comments there. Or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we will work your comments into the conversation. What do you think of groups like Antifa, or locally, by any means necessary here in Detroit, or Black Lives Matter, which I think has been unfairly uh, tagged with the violent uh, label? Uh, Are these truly violent groups, or are they violent in the sense of being responsive to the threat of violence or actual violence, on the far right. And in any case, is that okay? Uh, should we be talking about uh, looking at violence not in absolute terms, but in contextual terms? There's that violence that is responding to the threat of violence or violence is morally different than violence for the sake of violence or to achieve uh, an, an independent. And I've got two great guests here to lead this conversation. Uh, Ali Johnson is professor and chair of the Department of African American Studies at Wayne State University. Ali, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Uh, Also here is Frank Joyce, an author and activist, uh, someone we have uh, many times gone to to talk about the nature of progressive movements here, not just in Detroit, but in the United States. Frank, welcome back to Detroit Stephen, today. great to be here. Yes, it's good to see you. Uh, I want to start with uh, you, Ollie, and uh, I want you to put this in uh, some historical perspectives for us. Talk about uh, the role that violence has played or had to play in progressive movements, particularly uh, when we're talking about progressive movements that are uh, that are rooted in in the African American struggle in in the United States. Well, violence has been central to our struggle for freedom, justice, and equality, and it's been uh, justified in most circumstances because 
we have been oppressed, repressed, persecuted, and we still are. And so uh, we, like all people, have a right to defend ourselves <laughs> right. and to fight for our freedom. Uh, unfortunately, the government uh, is very violent domestically and internationally, but it asks uh, protest groups to be nonviolent mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and insist on that while it doesn't follow its own uh, recommendation. And so uh, throughout history, our leading uh, activists and organizations have been infiltrated, uh, sabotaged, repressed, and often violently uh, disrupted. Go back to the Marcus Garvey movement, 19-teens and 1920s, civil rights movement, 50s and 60s, black power movement, 60s and 70s. I mean, there's an ongoing... uh, history of violence by the government, local law enforcement, county, state, and federal. J. Edgar Hoover was notorious for uh, his efforts to repress people uh, fighting for their rights, fighting for democracy. And, and it's outrageous, and unfortunately, it continues today, and it's very concerning. Yeah. So, uh, these- and so, so when I say things like that, like you just said, as uh, I did in the newspaper over the weekend, and I'm going to read a, a passage from what, what I wrote in the Free Press. The response I get uh, is that that's not the way to see it, that violence is violence, that you can't accept violence on behalf of one cause and not uh, another. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this uh, passage to you and, and then talk about the response I got from it. I said, this is, for instance, where someone like President Donald Trump gains the currency to equate counter-protesters in Charlottesville with the torch-bearing racist who incited the violence in the first place. Each side is stripped of its historical context, and everyone is seen as an individual acting with no connection to that context, and it's easy to equate anti-fascists with white supremacists. Violence is violence, right? But that false narrative dangerously forgets the tremendous moral imbalances between those who have used violence from the jump to assault and suppress the most basic human rights of others and those who have indulged violence to counter it. These differences matter in substantive terms that are critical to the very idea of America and its claim, its tenuous, compromised claim to virtue in the name of liberty. Now, my email box was overflowing <laughs> on Monday with people who said that's an absolutely false analysis, that that uh, that excusing violence on one hand uh, is not okay. What's your answer to that? Hypocrisy is an American tradition, and unfortunately <laughs> it's live and well. Uh, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, James Monroe, the other slave-owning presidents and their governments were violent white supremacists, rapists, male supremacists. I mean, these are (laughs) the people who created this thing called America, and they were the most violent. And so it's at the core of who we are as a nation and a people. And that's why we can not only celebrate, uh, I mean, we we can celebrate Confederates, neo-Nazis, Aryan nation groups, but we also have to rethink our celebration and our monuments and our schools named after these founding uh, leaders because yeah. they are tremendously We're overdue. problematic. We're overdue. A really They're tremendously problematic in 2017. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, Frank Joyce, you were a part of progressive movements uh, back in the 1960s, uh, as you are now. I want to go back, though, Mm -hmm. uh, to that time here in Detroit uh, and and in America when when there were all sorts of reasons for uh, progressives to be be agitated and uh, demanding uh, change here in America. Talk about the role that violence played then and whether that violence was a tool that sort of the opposition could use to undercut the moral uh, imperative behind what was what was happening. In other words, uh, was the violence a distraction or uh, or or a sort of compromising influence on the, the, the sort of virtue of those movements. I, I, I want to respond to that by connecting back to something that Ali just said that I think is important. It's not just that hypocrisy is a tradition in the United States. I've given this a, a lot of thought. I think the core value, if you drill all the way down, uh, the core value of the United States is hypocrisy. <laughs> um, it is in the Declaration of Independence, it is in the Constitution, it is in the Federalist Papers, it is in all of that. And the way that matters here, uh, I think, Stephen, is that the false equivalence, this false parody that Trump appealed to of, you know, there are good people and bad people on both sides— uh, to uh, to paraphrase H. Rap Brown, the violence is as American as cherry pie, but the hypocrisy about the violence is as American as cherry cherry pie as well. When Martin Luther King gave his famous April Fourth Beyond Vietnam speech, mm-hmm. um, which this year was the anniversary of, and I was involved with organizing some observations and commemorations of that speech all over all over the country. One of the points that he made is, as an advocate of nonviolence himself, is how can I go on the streets of Chicago and ask young African-American men who are being sent to commit violence in Vietnam to be nonviolent here in the United States? But the point of that story is that that is what he did. He did ask them to be nonviolent. And every social change movement in U.S. history, from the abolitionists to current struggles, have been overwhelmingly nonviolent in the face of an overwhelmingly violent society. Response, sure. Yeah. There is no parody. There's no left-wing equivalent of the KKK. There just isn't. Uh, so talk about, though, the role that violence played in the 60s in these movements. Uh, was it just the sort of specter that lurked behind what Dr. King was saying and uh, some of these other non, nonviolent movements? Or was it a sort of necessary hammer that you, ha- you, know, that you bring out every once in a while to make the point that uh, that that the things you want and the things that you want respected uh, may have to be uh, enforced with with some violence? Well, I don't think so, but it's more specifically to your question. So, okay, the two organizations of the 60s that are most commonly associated with violence are the Weather Underground, Uh 
which emerged towards the end of the struggle against the Vietnam against the War, war yes. in particular, and which reflected quite a bit of frustration at the the failure to bring the war to an end after years of... But still, the Weather Underground was itself a deviation from what the culture and practice of the anti-war movement had been. The other, prior to that, of course, there's Robert Williams and Negroes with Guns, um, which is sometimes invoked by white people to make this false equivalence. But Robert Williams never, never, never deviated from advocating guns for defense. He was never an advocate of the offensive use of weapons in support of the civil rights or African-American cause. And then the Panthers, of course, uh, which started out uh, serving breakfast and doing (laughs) educational programs, got the reputation for being associated with violence because Huey Newton and others took advantage of the open carry laws in California and took guns to the state legislature in Sacramento, at which point Ronald Reagan came out in favor of gun control. Mm-hmm. Imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> Think about that right. for a minute. We're going with gun control for some people. <laughs> for Not some for people. everybody. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> All right. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. Uh, my guests are Frank Joyce, an author and activist, and also Ali Johnson, professor and chair of the Department of African-American Studies at Wayne State University. We are talking about violence and its relationship to progressive movements. Uh, The word Antifa has recently entered the political lexicon in the United States in reference to a loose group of people who are, in some cases, embracing the idea that violence is often necessary to push push back against Nazis, against white supremacists. What do you think of that idea? Do you agree that violence is perhaps an American quality that we see across the political spectrum and that we shouldn't expect the left to disarm itself any more than we have expected the right to disarm itself? Or do you think that violence on both sides is just not acceptable and that we ought to be condemning it uh, in equal terms? If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phone. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, uh, put your comments there. Uh, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. Uh, we'll work your comments into the conversation. Uh, uh, let's uh, let's go to Brian on on the phones here. Brian in Detroit. Welcome hey, to good Detroit morning. Today. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, this, is, this is Brian. Uh, my thoughts were that I, I started watching like Fox News uh-huh. just, just to see what the other side was talking about, and they're always trying to paint Black Lives Matter. And all these groups with the same brush they paint the Nazis with, and it just doesn't make sense. But if you if that's all you watch is Fox News, and all you get is their information, then you see that these groups are like, oh, they're just the same as the uh, Nazis, and that's just the way uh, they're trying to uh, promote them as, as being the same thing. Sure, sure. So, so, so Brian, though, uh, talk about how how you approach these issues. Do you see? Do you see violence as a necessary part of the pushback against white supremacists, for instance, or or Nazis? Hit in the face, you got to push back. I mean, it's not the it's not the days of you know King and 
the other guy, I was, man, the Indian guy, uh, Gandhi. You know, Gandhi. you got <laughs> They just stood there and took it by the, uh, you know, that just showed that they were stronger. But these days, with everybody carrying guns and stuff, you can't really just stand there and and these, and take it. So you got to push back. Yeah. Uh, Brian, thanks very much for the call uh, and the comments. Chuck on Facebook says, the left-wing activist who vandalized and ruined forever a statue of Robert E. Lee at the Duke University Chapel in Durham, North Carolina, were not, quote, responding to any violence. They acted alone and without any direct provocation. They were criminal vandals, and they will be rightly charged criminally. I hope and expect... They'll face criminal punishment, just as the car driver in Charlottesville will face the full brunt of criminal law. People need to learn to let others protest. The antidote for offensive speech is more speech, and not violence aimed at shutting down the offensive speech. Chuck, thank you for that comment. Can I make a comment to Chuck's comment? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this is like the conversation that uh, often comes up in which you get people like Bill O'Reilly and so on. Uh, suddenly crying crocodile tears over black-on-black violence. But they don't do that independently of some other issue of violence coming up. And I think we cannot say often enough and help white people in particular understand the immersiveness of violence in our society— from the extraordinarily brutal conquest of this continent by colonialism in the first place, mm-hmm. the intrinsic violence of slavery and of the Jim Crow system and so on. One of the things I did back in the day, Stephen, was uh, I was working for a publication. This was would have been in the late 1960s. And we did an inventory of how many people were killed in the civil rights movement in and of itself. Mm -hmm. The most famous of whom, of course, are Goodman, Cheney, and Schwerner, and Medgar Evers, and of course, ultimately, uh, Malcolm X and Martin Luther King assassinated, etc. Well over 125 people died during the modern civil rights movement of the 1960s. The number of white supremacists who were victims of violence, even injury, never mind death, in that same struggle was zero. Yes. Again, there is just this this There's an imbalance there that that the critics of left-wing violence don't want to acknowledge. Well, and to the Ben, to the to Chuck's point, where was he or his father? I don't know how old he is. On the question of the prosecution of the of the investigation, investigate uh, prosecution and conviction of those who killed Goodman, Cheney, and Schwerner, right. would he have been on a call and show back and then saying, "Get those guys and get them now"? I have my doubts. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we are going to continue our conversation about left-leaning protest groups. And, of course, we want to hear from you. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. we got a good conversation going here on the phones, on email, on Facebook, and on Twitter. We'll be right back on Detroit Today. I'm Amanda LeClaire. Listen in today at noon on Culture Shift. We'll let you know what's happening in music, arts, and culture here in Detroit. That's today at noon on 1019 WDET.
You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, thanks for tuning in. My guests are Frank Joyce, author and activist. Also, Ollie Johnson, who is professor and chair of the Department of African-American Studies at Wayne State University. We are talking about left-leaning protest groups and whether violence, the specter of violence that has been raised with regard to discussion of these groups recently, is acceptable. Is violence always wrong? Is it always a moral scourge? Or are there situations in which violence is justified? Is violence in answer to violence different than violence uh, acted on independently and without justification? If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number. 313-577-1019. You can also join the conversation on Facebook, on our WDET Facebook page, and on Twitter, at Detroit Today. We'll try to work your comments into the conversation. I want to start this segment with a cut. I spent uh, the early part of this week in Washington hosting, guest hosting, uh, a show called 1A from WAMU and NPR, uh, where we talked about Antifa. Uh, This quote is from Mark Bray. He is the author of a book called Antifa, the Anti-Fascist Handbook. He's an historian and lecturer at Dartmouth College who says uh, Antifa is simply an answer to right-wing violence. It's both a historical argument that in order to defeat fascism, rational dialogue and discourse prove to be insufficient and we shouldn't make that mistake again. And it's also a recognition of the fact that even in small doses, fascism and white supremacy can be incredibly dangerous And rather than uh, infighting among the anti-racist factions, I think it's more reasonable to say, okay, we can agree to disagree about some of this stuff, but let's show up, let's stand together, and and if they come at us, let's protect each other. Okay, that sounds quite reasonable. Put that... Put that in context, though, uh, with what we're seeing right now uh, with the rise of Antifa here in, in the United States, with the criticism that we see that's being leveled at Black Lives Matter. A lot of people trying to lump Black Lives Matter in, I think, with, with, with Antifa. What's the lens through which we ought to be looking at the violence that we see uh, on the left side of the political spectrum now, Ali Johnson? To answer your earlier question, violence is not always wrong. You don't condemn the slave for using violence to fight for liberation or to escape slavery. We should celebrate Weather Underground. We should celebrate Robert Williams. We should celebrate Black Lives Matter. We should celebrate um, celebrate uh, the other current groups who are defending uh, progressive activists from right-wing and fascist violence. Um, that struggle's ongoing. The violence that we should be condemning is not only the neo-Nazi uh, Aryan nation violence, it's the violence uh, of our government. The violence of institutional inequality. Which is much greater than any small organizational uh, group or individual violence. Uh, and I always say that uh, the United States is a global empire. Mil- thousand military bases all over the country, over 50 countries to protect Uh, the interests of political and economic elites, committing violence every day, no punishment, unaccountability. So if you want to understand why uh, cops, law enforcement get away with killing black people today, unarmed black people, innocent black people, uh, you can look abroad because it's going on every day, mainly with people of color, mainly poor people. Who's in prison now? 
Mainly poor people. Right. Mainly, mainly African people of color. It's, it's outrageous. Yeah. Uh, let's go back to the phones here. Chris in Southfield. Chris, welcome to Detroit Today. Hey, thank you for having me. Uh-huh. Um, first and foremost, thank you all very much for having this conversation because it's one that I've been thinking a lot about lately. The, um, I think that if the United States is justified in using violence abroad to fight the so-called terrorism, I think that we're justified here in using violence to fight against domestic terrorists. Now, the question that I have is, is this. I think that it's, this is for both of your guests. If, um, if African Americans have exercised every means in order to fight for equality and equal treatment, um, which I think is fair to say, my, my question then is, why is it African Americans have not turned to more extreme forms of violence in order to fight for equality and justice? Yeah. Uh, Chris, that's a that's a really that's wonderful a question. question. It's a question that I've sort of been mulling over the last uh, eight eight or twelve months as well. The, the example I keep coming up with is that of Harriet Tubman. Uh, Harriet Tubman does not sit back and say, "I'm going to wait for the political infrastructure to uh, end slavery and free people." I'm going to free slaves, and I'm going to do that through any possible means available to me. And this was somebody who, you know, now we think of as a rather, I guess, grandmotherly uh, figure, but in her day was uh, quite radical. And at times when she needed to be, uh, she was violent. We don't see a corollary to that in modern America. Why not? Well, I don't think we saw really, I think Harriet Tubman was an exceptional figure and an exceptional woman uh, at the time. But I come back to two things. And I, I should, in the interest of personal and full disclosure, I should say but that my own political evolution from the 60s to now is that I now identify as a pacifist. Mm-hmm. And I do think uh, that uh, I, there is no problem to which violence is the solution that I can see. From a purely tactical point of view, set aside the moral and philosophic underpinnings of that. You don't believe it achieves the ends. That, well, because uh, it's just way too lopsided. Um, and because I look at the civil rights movement, I look at the trade union movement, I look at the women's movement, I look at the abolition movement, and I see that the primary gains that have been made have pri- primarily been made through nonviolent strategies and Tactics, And I think particularly now when the cumulative effect of what Ali was talking about of the use of violence, of the homicide rate of this country, Mm -hmm. of the worship of the military, of the degree to which our culture, our entertainment celebrates violence, this is a more important time to be nonviolent than ever. Yeah, yeah. That's a really that's a really interesting sort of uh, way to, to think of the things that we're seeing that are going on right now. Let's go to uh, Heidi in Detroit. Heidi, welcome to Hi. Detroit today. Go ahead. Um, I wanted to talk about that. I think that trying to criticize or frame the argument as defensive violence is wrong, or it's just a couple rogue people going violent is trying to erase the fact that really this is an effort by white supremacy. And I mean that in the most general term to maintain itself and maintain white supremacy. It's saying you will not change the balance of power, you know, and so you're not allowed to fight back and be violent because of that. And I think that a lot of people don't 
realize, I think that there in the, for whites, there is empathy for it in the sense of like, if you watch any movies like the strongman movies, uh, whether it's Rambo or Clint Eastwood or something like that, defensive violence there is rewarded. It's of course it's okay because somebody has been hurt. Somebody has been oppressed. And why is that different? You know, if, if we know that people are capable of supporting that and saying, oh, it's, you know, now it's time to defend yourself from, you know, your spouse who's been abusing you, you rise up and you can fight, except for this is actually challenging white supremacy. And that's why it's not acceptable. Right. Yeah, it's it's the it's the sort of substantive basis for it. That is the basis for the objection. Uh, it's what you're saying, not the violence itself. Heidi, great point. I'm glad you called and made that. Steve in Detroit, you're up next on Detroit Today. Uh, hi, uh, thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, I wanted to call and bring up two points, and they both have to relate to to Gandhi, who I think, you know, along with Martin Luther King, is credited, uh, I think, with showing the strength of, of nonviolence. Mm-hmm. And so the first point, of course, is, you know, if you watch the movie Gandhi, which I think is an outstanding film, you'll see that violence is not an inherently American system. The British were incredibly violent against the uh, the Indians. So I, I'd like to push back a little bit on that comment. And, you know, even even um, in Gandhi, you know, there was a massacre of over a thousand um, uh, Indians in a single incident, which is 10 times as many people that were killed in the civil rights movement. And yet Gandhi still advocated for nonviolent protests against the British government and ultimately, of course, won their their statehood. So I'm, I'm very happy to hear the comment of uh, one of your your uh, your uh, speakers there, who says who who advocated for pacifism, uh, pacifism, because I believe that you know Gandhi certainly demonstrated the strength yeah. of what can happen. Uh, Steve, you think that's that. the more effective path? Frank Joyce uh, I just it, echo- echoed that same. Uh, uh, yeah, sentiment. I think it, I think you lose the moral high ground when you when you know you have to resort to violence. Yeah. Uh, Steve, thanks very much uh, for calling, making that point. Ollie Johnson, I want to get you a chance to react to that. Thank you so much. I uh, have a lot of respect for Gandhi, for King, for other folks who struggle nonviolently. Uh, I disagree with that perspective. I think all means of struggle should be on the table. Um, I think the black community has never collectively limited itself limited itself to one means of struggle. It's always been sure. multiple forms of struggle. I think that's how it should be. Um, you have to think strategically and tactically. And so uh, the means that people use depends on the context and the setting in which they're in. So you ask, why don't we see more violence? Well, uh, police repression, number one. Mm-hmm. The consequence... Think about this. King was uh, put under surveillance. He was hounded. He was ultimately assassinated. And he was publicly 100% committed to nonviolence as a means and an end. Mm-hmm. So imagine uh, the hammer that the government put on Malcolm X, Robert Williams, and other people who said, you know, I'm no, if you're going to use violence, I'm going to use violence. I can't, you know, put right. one arm behind my back. And so I think that's a part of the reason that the Panthers were uh, declined so dramatically police repression. And so uh, we as a community have to have all means at our disposal to fight for our liberation. Yeah. Uh, uh, we're almost out of time, but uh, just uh, quickly, 
If if you do that, though, what about the idea of the effectiveness? Can you think of an instance in which a, a minority population has been successful in a sort of violent revolt against the majority? Well, again, if we go back to Robert Williams, I mean, he defended that community in Monroe, yeah. North Carolina for years. Yes. And he wasn't the only one. I mean, it was the NACP mm-hmm. and the masses of the community who were already armed and they were organized, and so they defended their homes, their families, their children. So in, in specific situations, armed self-defense works. Yeah. Okay. All right, Frank Joyce, author and activist. Ali Johnson, professor and chair of the Department of African American Studies at Wayne State University. Thanks for being here on Detroit Today. All right, that's going to do it for me today. I will be back on Monday. I hope you will, too. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station, community service of Wayne State University. See you tomorrow.